Well, this Bible, this Bible lesson is for everybody whose life is not significant enough so that when you leave your job, the headlines will say he's gone. <laughs> for most of us, I don't think it'll make any difference in the commercial appeal and you're gone. I don't think there's any solution for this. I just don't think we can recover from Kalapari leaving town. I think that's it. That's it for Tiger basketball in the city of Memphis. Okay. So, since you've asked, we're going to look at the book of Ecclesiastes. And this year we have had the privilege of looking at what we call wisdom literature. Hopefully it's going to make us wiser men to have studied this. And to quote uh, Derek Kidner, Old Testament commentator, he says, these books, these three books, cover three aspects of life which no one can afford to overlook. Proverbs, the demand of practical good management. Job, the enigma of calamities that are beyond control or explanation. And Ecclesiastes, the tantalizing hollowness and brevity of human life. For those of you who are going through struggles, Trials, bereavement, Job is really helpful, isn't it? It's good to have somebody just be even more miserable than you are. You know, and who tells you that there's, there's maybe a little glimmer of hope out there for us and our sufferings. Now, for those of you who are real happy, we're going to make you sad too. Uh, <laughs> that's what Ecclesiastes is doing, is reminding those of us who are just real happy, think we've got good health and generally optimistic, that we have absolutely no reason to be so. Uh, when you consider life from the perspective of someone who's not thinking about eternity. And that's the whole point, that uh, we have to let eternity invade our thinking before life really has meaning that will stand up to scrutiny. And I, I think that uh, Ecclesiastes has been very, very popular this past century, particularly because we've, as a culture in the West, have delved into the meaningless of life in a really serious way with existentialism, I mean, existentialism is a commentary on Ecclesiastes, really. And then existentialism, which, by the way, is, uh, I, I was taught, I don't know, tell me if this is, is right, but this is what my professor told me, that existence precedes essence. That explains everything, doesn't it, gentlemen? <laughs> Basically, what existentialism is saying is there is no essence to life. You can't categorize life and say this is what it is. It just is, and then essence comes later. In other words, existence first, and then you decide what essence is. Because it doesn't, life doesn't have essence in of itself. It doesn't fit prearranged categories. So its existence precedes essence. And of course, the outcome of all this in, in existentialism was you have to impose your own meaning on life. Because life doesn't come with its own categories. It doesn't come with its own meaning. It just is. And then you have to impose ex uh, essence to it. You have to impose meaning to it. And when you watch the existentialists try to do that, it's a disaster. And several of them just end up committing suicide, uh, which is the logical outcome of existentialism and the book of Ecclesiastes until you get to the last chapter. So if you're thinking about it, just hang on to the last chapter and you'll be, just, you'll be fine. But, but when you try to impose meaning on something as huge as life, you're just going to be, you're, you're going to strike out. You're, you're going to be frustrated. And this writer is going to show us and he's very bright. He's going to show us every effort human beings can make to bring meaning out of life, to impose meaning on life. And it just doesn't work. I, 
You remember reading The Sun Also Rises? I think I've got the right book by Hemingway. And they've been to the bullfight uh, in Spain, and they've been drinking you know, all night, and the two main characters are sitting there together after all this done, and it's just a sad, depressing... You know, the existentials will give us these lengthy, meaningless dialogues just, just to demonstrate the meaninglessness of life. You get these long, meaningless dialogues. And here you have them. They're, they're kind of drunk, kind of hungover. It's, it's just, you know, and it's just kind of the mess of the day after. And I, I remember this, you know, after fraternity parties on Friday night and Saturday night, and just walking from the fraternity house you know, on Sunday morning and just the devastation of the Virginia campus, you know, and, and you're kind of hungover and half drunk, half hungover. And I, so I can identify with this thing. Sun also rises and they're talking to each other and they say, man, we had fun this weekend, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, this, this was fun. This was really great. Yeah, but I think that's about the most fun I ever had. Yeah, it was really fun. You get that kind of dialogue and sun also rises. And it just shows you the... The, the reason I really appreciate the existentialists is that they, they take us to, to the edge until you get to the nihilists who take existentialism to, the, to its ultimate conclusion that there is nothing that means anything. So you can't even impose meaning on, on existence. Existence means nothing. It's nihil. It's nothing. So, and, and that leads to the darkness uh, that brought on so many of the tragedies of the, of the 20th century. Well, Ecclesiastes <laughs> dealt with this, uh, gentlemen, 3,000 years ago, uh, if we'd just be listening. So let's look at Ecclesiastes. We're going to try to cover one and a half chapters today of Ecclesiastes and, and, uh, because we want to make our way through this, but we don't want to be in meaninglessness forever. So we're going we're gonna to take some chunks here. But let's just start reading with the beginning of chapter 1. And there is a reason to be reading this. It, there's a big reason to be reading this, as we'll see. We need to get our lives in gear so that we understand where meaning comes from and live in, a, in the light of it. Uh, and that's the whole point of this book. Well, let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1. This is page 1034, verse 1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. 
I thought to myself, look, I have grown and I and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the days of, few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs of water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Then I, heard my, then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise man has eyes in his head while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this too is meaningless. For the wise man, like the fool, will not be long remembered. In days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Okay, that's just a little news there to cheer you up today. All right. Let's look at chapter 1, verse 1, and we learn this. Wisdom comes from miserable people. No, wisdom comes from wise people. Wisdom comes from wise people. It says, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Israel, in Jerusalem. Now, who is this that is talking? It looks as though it's kind of obvious that it's Solomon. He's the son of David. He's king in Jerusalem. However, when you look at verse 12, instead of speaking in the third person, which he's doing in verse 1, he speaks in the first person in verse 12. I, the teacher. But then he uses the past tense, and this throws scholars off. It really, this is how scholars get paid for answering questions like this. Why is it in the past tense? I was king over Israel. Because Solomon never was not king. There never was a time when he could say, I was the king. He always was the king. So he would say, I am the king. Scholars are really stumped. There are other reasons I won't go into that 
in this text that some scholars are saying he's not writing like royalty. Uh, there are times when, when the, the author will speak of the oppression of, oppression of kings. Well, he is the king. What's he talking about? Uh, so there's some confusion on who this author is, whether it really is Solomon or whether it's some successor to Solomon later on as a king, or possibly there are two authors, or the two, two speakers. One is the narrator who begins in verse 1. He says, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. And he begins to narrate, and then he quotes the Solomon figure, whether it's Solomon or a, someone who is writing as though he were Solomon to say, we all know Solomon was the wisest man on the face of the earth. Let me give you a figure that's as wise as Solomon and watch him as he tries to bring meaning to life. And that that quotation goes all the way through chapter 12 until you get to the epilogue. So some are saying there's a prologue, verses 1 through 11, where the narrator introduces. Then we get the words of this Solomon-type figure until we get to chapter 12. You can turn there on page 1048 where the NIV says the conclusion of the matter. And there the narrator picks up again with his own voice and gives us the epilogue. Now, that's one possibility. Another possibility is that this really is Solomon. Uh, and he's, it's Solomon who's arguing with himself. Solomon who's in touch with the darkness and misery of life and yet he finally gives his own answer at the end because the answer to this comes in the epilogue at the very end. That's a possibility. Or it could be that two people are kind of arguing about it. There's more likely one person who's almost arguing with himself. Some people say Solomon wrote the first part of it in his youth and the latter part came up with the answer in his old age. And I don't think that's true. I don't, I don't think that you face some of the darkest misery of life without eternity until you're older and you're looking back and you're saying, now what was the meaning of all that? So uh, I, don't, I don't buy that particularly, but it seems to me that whether the author is Solomon or someone else, I'm going to go ahead and give you my own opinion, that we do have one person talking here. And I believe that he's talking like a man who doesn't believe in eternity when we begin Ecclesiastes. And then he opens the window of heaven at the very end and says, but here, here's the conclusion of the matter. So what we're getting in Ecclesiastes is a person who's trying to find meaning in life without dealing with the issue of eternity. And we're going to see how fruitless that is. And it's a very helpful exercise. And there is a way to live your life in light of eternity. And it makes all the difference in the way you live your life right now. So it, it, it's not just an issue that has to do with your, when you're on your deathbed. It has, it's an issue that has to do with Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Friday afternoon, as we'll see. But philosophically, this guy gives it his best shot at coming up with meaning apart from eternity. It really is funny as well as tragic. Now, the word uh, teacher is also debated by scholars. Who, what does this word mean? Teachers a good enough try. Some have preacher. I, don't, I can't remember what the KJV says. But it's the word koheleth. And I've written this, written this out for you. Koheleth. And that is a Q uh, in the Hebrew. And it just, koheleth 
comes from the word, in Hebrew, you know, the consonants are really significant. So you could take the Q and the H and the L. Kahal. Kahal is an assembly. It's a word that's used for church in the Old Testament. Kahal. So the Kaheleth is the one who convenes people. He's the gatherer. That's the reason for the word Ecclesiastes because the Greek trans- translation for Kahal is Ecclesia, which is the word for church. And so Ecclesiastes would be the one, and, and Ecclesia just means to call out or to assemble, and Ecclesiastes would be the one who assembles people. So this guy's an assembler. He's a caller of people together. And teacher is as good a try at its meaning as anything else, I suppose. But he's one who brings people together. And certainly one who is wise does bring people together. But we'll notice once again that wisdom comes from wise people. And the point of all this is for us to get into our souls the meaninglessness of life apart from eternity and to get that worked way down into our being. And when we get it worked into our being and we do have faith in Christ and in the hope of eternal life, wisdom will start to flow out of us. So much of human wisdom that we can get from one another comes from people who have experienced life from an eternal perspective. That's where wisdom comes from. Remember, wisdom is seeing the long run and applying the right means to gain the right long-term goal. And when your long-term runs right into heaven, now you're going to be directing your life appropriately and you're going to make the proper decisions along the way that lead to the right goal. That's what wisdom is. And people who have that are people who can share wisdom with other people. So once again, you see, even with a teacher, we're going to learn from wise people like Solomon or this Solomon figure. Now, secondly, as we look at the rest of this entire text, let's notice this basic idea that wisdom does reveal, it reveals our futility in this life. Meaningless, meaningless, says the Koheleth. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. (laughs) Well, good word for everything under the sun. Apart from eternity, everything is meaningless. Reminds me of the story of the bright young guy who just graduated from law school, uh, and he'd gotten a job in a really fine firm. And he was walking down the streets uh, of his city for lunch, and he was just as happy as he could be, uh, just whistling along, and he had the misfortune of running into the local philosophy professor. And the professor said, Son, what are you so happy about? He said, well, I just graduated from law school and I got a great job here in this, in this firm. Uh, and he said, oh, that's good. He said, so what are you going to do after that? He said, well, uh, this town has some beautiful women in it. I'm going to find myself a wife and get married. We're going to have a happy family. So what are you going to do after that? He said, well, I'm, we're going to have kids and we'll get our SUV and a little, you know, golden retriever in the back and, uh, you know, and we'll just have a blast. What are you going to do after that? He said, well, I'm, uh, shoot, my kids, they'll probably, have, they'll probably have kids and I'll have grandchildren. And what are you going to do after that? Well, he said, I'm going to work on my golf game. You know, when I get to be a senior partner and have time for that kind of thing, I'm going to work on my golf game and just have a lot of fun. What are you going to do after that? Well, I'm going to retire and I'll take my wife. We'll go down to Florida and we'll just play golf most of the time. He said, what are you going to do after that? Yeah, well, okay. So he walked off. 
So don't, don't talk to philosophers. They'll just mess with your head. Uh, but what's the, what's the answer to that? What are you going to do after that? What are you going to do after that? What are you going to do after that? And uh, the advantage of philosophers is that they do make you think, and we should. Because is it just one short-term diversion after another? Often I find with guys that's basically what life consists of. It was one short-term diversion after another until you get too old to enjoy that one. <laughs> you know, and you have to go on to the next one, you know. And if you look at our little games, they're all suited for age and stage, you know. <laughs> you know, you can, you can play basketball with the guys for a while. Then you hit the tennis court, and then you hit the golf, and then you're sitting there on the TV watching it, you know, and that's about it. And you go from one, you go from one diversion to another. I know my, my arthritis has been driving my life all the way down the way. And so, you know, Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now, you'll notice I've given you the word for meaninglessness here. It's the word hebel. And it just means breath, breeze, vapor, basically just nothing. Uh, it's found almost 35 times, between 30 and 35 times in uh, Ecclesiastes. So it's obviously a key concept is this concept of meaninglessness. What's interesting if you'll look in Romans 8 for just a moment, and that would be page 18. Page 1823. Page 1824. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For, verse 20, the creation was subjected to Hebel. Frustration. Uh, it's the word matiotes, and I wrote that out for you too. But that's translating the Hebrew word Hebel. Was subjected to frustration or meaninglessness not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Now notice, the creation was subjected to this meaninglessness. By whom? By God Himself. When we fell from our favor with Him, when we rebelled against Him and sinned against Him, He has subjected the entire creation to meaninglessness. He's behind it all. And the reason is, He doesn't want you to get to the tree of life in this miserable world. You're going to get the tree of life and you're going to live eternally in a world that's quite different from this one. So He doesn't want you to live forever in this world. He doesn't want you to get attached to it. And that's the reason that everything's futile and meaningless in this life. He's behind it the master, and he's leading us somewhere. So let's enter into the meaninglessness of it. Let's face it. Now, two things uh, cause this futility. One is death, and the other is the inability to control things around us. So if you want to know why you get so frustrated, it's because you know where you're headed. I mean, don't you find it true, guys, that uh, especially when you get, oh, I don't know, up around 50 or something, maybe your upper 40s, every once in a while it just kind of dawns on you, this thing is going to close out here pretty soon. <laughs> yeah, I mean, did you, did you, you guys are in your 40s. You're starting to, you get that every once in a while. It usually just comes a little, if you're an optimist, it's, it's not all the time. And, you know, if you're melancholy, you're, that's all you think about. You know, every morning, oh boy, I'm going to go out there and die. You know? 
Uh, like, I, I remember my, my, some of you know my son Drew, and uh, he's, he's a hardworking person, and he's, he's certainly not uh, a pessimist. But when he was a kid, we used to call him Eeyore. Uh, and I remember one time going up in his room, and he was five years old, and it was dark like it was when we came into Bible study this morning. It must have been about 6.30 in the morning. I went into his room, and there he was sitting on the edge of his bed. And I said, Drew, how you doing? He said, it's been a terrible day. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows what that little boy was going through already, these dreams, you know. And I remember uh, Bill Douglas, who's in our church, his son-in-law is Bill Chapin, uh, who lives on Lookout Mountain. And I used to pastor Bill when I was pastor of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church. And when I left, they, they gave me this video of all the funny things that I had said to them and all the really wonderful advice I'd given them. And Bill Chapin was one of them, and he was looking, he's looking at the camera, and I still have this thing, this DVD. He says, uh, Sandy, I just want to thank you for the great advice you gave me. You'll remember when I came and I talked to you about some problems that Joan and I were working through in our early marriage and some of the problems we had with our kids, and you gave me great advice. You said, Bill... Life is tough, and then you die. I don't know if I actually said that, but you know what? That's not bad advice. You know, it's right, it's right here in Ecclesiastes. Life is tough, and then you die. You know, get with it. And if you think life is something else, you're just going from one transitory dream and make-believe, one little diversion to the next one. You know, from your basketball to your tennis to your golf to your TV set. Let's get real. Uh, We are going to die, and we don't have much control over things. Now, let's look at verse 3. And what we see here in the futility that's being revealed by a wise man, here's what we get. In verse 3, we profit nothing from our labor. (laughs) Sorry to disappoint you guys, but what does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? The word gain is found in this book nine times. And it's asked over and over again, what are you gaining? What is the meaning of all of this? What do you expect to get out of this? Uh, And we we have it, uh, uh, this this phrase, under the sun. Do you see that? Um, There's nothing new under the sun. And uh, this comes 29 times in Ecclesiastes. um, In verse 3, at which he toils under the sun. What's he saying? as far as things on the earth, under the sun. Okay, we're not going to go above the sun. We're not going to go off into the heavens. Just under the sun. 29 times in Ecclesiastes, he's making a point. Let's talk about life under the sun. And under the sun, you don't profit very much. And, uh, you know, I've never, ever talked to any man who was dying. And he said, I sure wish I had another million dollars. Never had anybody say that to me. But I've had things said like, I wish I'd spent more time with my wife and children. I wish I'd spent more time helping people. I wish I hadn't been so afraid. I wish I'd stepped out. I hear all kinds of things. But I never heard anybody say, I wish I had more money. (laughs) You know, when you know you're going, above all times, you realize that money doesn't mean anything. So what are you going to gain? from all that money you got. Um, Secondly, verses 4 through 11, 
we are forgotten by our successors. Generations come and generations go, and there is no remembrance of men of old. I think I may have told you the story about my dad when he was he played football at Transylvania. Let's see. He was born in 1912, so I guess he graduated, what, 33? Something like that? That's a great time to graduate, look for a job, huh? Uh, so 1933, uh, they have a game with their big rival. And you, you know, of course, in 33, the single wing was a thing. Now, Coakley will tell you the single wing is still in, you know, because uh, Tennessee played single wing. I think they're the last one finally to drop it. But back in the old days, everybody played single wing. It wasn't just people who hadn't heard about, you know, quarterbacks and things like that. So, but in the single wing... The quarterback was actually to the side of the center. You remember, like he stood like this. He, he rarely got the ball. The quarterback he usually blocked, but the tailback was the one that got the snap, like the shotgun. You know, you had the tailback and then you had a fullback. I think it was. Well, my dad was a tailback, so he was big cheese. So it was it was a game that was in the mud against their big rival, and the score was zero to zero, and nobody was scoring anything until the fourth quarter. And what happened was, uh, I speak as though I was there. I was in my father's loins. <laughs> And uh, so, so what happened in that game was, uh, you know, in those days, it was really foxy if you could kick a quick kick. I mean, that could be a really big play because, you know, nobody was back there to get the kick. And so the tailback was the one who did the quick kick. So my dad, uh, on his own initiative, takes a snap and just does a little rocker thing and kicks the ball, gets it down there right on the three-yard line of the opponent. And eventually, they couldn't work their way out. They fumbled, and then Transylvania scored and won the game. My dad was feeling pretty good on Monday morning until he ran into the philosophy professor. <laughs> literally, literally, this happened. He was going down the sidewalk of Transylvania. Everybody was congratulating Bill. You know, great game, Bill. Boy, that was fabulous, that quick kick. And Bill, you're our hero. Wonderful. And he runs into Dr. Smith. Hello, Dr. Smith. Hello, Mr. Wilson. That was quite a game yesterday. Thank you, sir. That was really quite a clever play you made with that quick kick. Thank you, sir. Mr. Wilson? Yes, Mr. Dr. Smith? In 30 years, no one will know a thing about that football game. <laughs> and he walked off. That was it. Generations come and generations go. There is no remembrance of men of old. There is nothing new under the sun. And we are completely forgotten. And I'm sitting there, you know, last week, looking into the eyes of my beautiful little granddaughter, who is the most beautiful woman on the face of the earth. She's more beautiful than your grandchildren. And uh, I'm sitting there looking at her, and then she's, she's born in my youth. I'm only 58. So I'm likely to have a great relationship with this girl. As a matter of fact, I am going to be this girl's hero. She's going to think there's no one better in the entire world than her papa. And now she'll know me fairly well if I have a life, if I live as old as my father. He lived at 83. So if I live at 83, what's that, 25 years? I may even be at her wedding. I may even get to conduct her wedding. This is going to be fun. And I've already started to pick out the dress and other things. <laughs> And uh, now she's going to have a child, probably. And I don't know whether I'll be around for that child. But if, if I am, not very long. That child really won't know me, may have a slim remembrance of me. Then she's going to have a child 25 years later. 
That child will not even know Papa's name. Who was my great-grandfather? You know, tell me about it. And then her child won't even care. And I'll be left to the family archivist uh, who may scratch up an old, some old library, you know, or uh, something about who this person was. Folks, we're gone. And it happens before you know it. And eventually, nobody gives a rip about you. You know? There's no hope for being remembered. And this is exactly what Solomon the Great is saying. He's saying, there is no remembrance of men of old. Just forget it. If you think you're going to build some sort of great memory and everybody, you know, and you think that it's going to help you to get a statue built, you know? You know, I, I dream of this, you know, right in the front of First Pres- uh, Second, we are Second, Second Presbyterian <laughs> Church. Right in front of Second Presbyterian Church, there's a statue of Wilson holding forth the Word of God, you know? These things that we, you know, it's amazing how we're stuck to our own name. You know, you get your phone book. What's the first name you look up in there? You look up your own name, see if they spell it right, you know. It's unbelievable. And yet Solomon, the wise man, is saying, guys, get a grip. Uh, you know, there's, there's nothing new. And this, the whole thing is just cycling. Okay, verses 12 through 18, we are burdened by our knowledge. So Solomon's saying, hey, you want to know how great it is to be a wise man? Let me tell you, with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. He's saying it's kind of like like a doctor. You've got cancer, and you're a doctor. I just want you to know I'm really sorry because you know way too much. I'm expecting that doctor to fool me. And tell me that my chances are great. And I'm going to believe him. It's not going to work with you. You know too much. And Solomon is saying, you know what happens with wisdom? It can be very depressing. It can be very depressing under the sun. Because if you're a wise man and you observed history, you just see things cycling around. What goes around comes around. And you find there's really nothing new. You know, as one of, one of you old guys told me the other day, you know, you know what's good about being old? You just know stuff. You know? And this, this stuff that we're going through now, now it's different. It's different from anything that the old guys have seen before. But it's not that different. You know, we've seen stuff. You know, and you just don't get too rattled. But you know what's wrong with being old? You've seen stuff. <laughs> and you're burdened. Because you know this ain't going anywhere. It's like I was coming out of the church one day. This is 25 years ago. Old church, I was pastoring. And we had a holly tree that needed to be trimmed. And I was coming out with an old elder. And he said, I ought to come out here and trim that holly tree. But he said, before it grows back, I'll be over there in the funeral home. (laughs) I realized, boy, it's just tough to know stuff. It's just tough to be around. It's tough to have wisdom. And that's what Solomon is saying. What has been, verse 9, will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Reminds me of Rudyard Kipling who one day said, the craft that we call modern, the crimes that we call new, John Bunyan had them typed and filed in 1682. There's nothing new. Okay, then when we come to chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, we learn that we are unsatisfied by our pleasures. Unsatisfied by our pleasures. 
I denied myself nothing my eyes desired, he said. Yet everything was meaningless. Now, look what he did not desire. Uh, he did not deny himself. First of all, in verse 2, he did not deny himself laughter. The pleasure of laughter. But he says laughter is foolish. It's foolish. If you're just going from one joke to the next, and I tell you what now, when I'm trying to deny reality, that's what I do. That's my strategy. Let's just laugh our way through this. <laughs> and my children just look at me, Dad, be quiet. You know, I'm trying to cheer them up and get them laughing. Dad, stop it. You know, that, because that's my method. Let's just deny reality by laughter. And Solomon says, Tried, been there, done that. It's meaningless. Secondly, how about wine? Hey, I tried that one too. I already told you about that. I tried cheering myself with wine. And I don't know if you've tried that lately, but shoot. Uh, I remember one day I was going down the, the road and I saw a, a bumper sticker. It kind of caught my attention. It said, in search of the eternal buzz. <laughs> I thought, I've done that. Uh, and Solomon, quite rightly, with all of his great wisdom, says, shoot, that's meaningless too. Uh, thirdly, how about projects? Let's do projects. Let's get busy. Let's fix this city. Let's find ourselves a coach. Let's get in the final four against Kentucky and beat the living stew out of them. <laughs> let's have a project. Let's do something meaningful here. Let's, let's really impress people. Let's be the best city on the face of the earth. Uh, let's, let's, you know, let's be like Lawrence of Arabia, who had to be one of the most phenomenal figures in history, who, who rearranged the entire map of the Middle East. And after he died, it all got rearranged again. So what difference does it make? The greatest guy who ever worked in that part of the world basically worked for nothing. And, you know, we do all this stuff, and if it's just under the sun, if we're supposed to find our reward for all of our great projects under the sun, it's meaningless because we're all going to die. We're going to die, and we have no control over outcomes. Hey, okay, that's not going to work. How about verses 7 and 8? Let's go to possessions. You know what? If this other stuff doesn't work, like you can't get projects that really give you a lot of fun or you... The hangovers are too much for wine or you're just sick of laughing. How about let's just build a big estate. Let's just collect stuff. I amassed silver and gold and, and you know what? Solomon could do it. He amassed a lot of silver and gold for himself. He had the treasure of kings and provinces. He acquired people. He, he bought slaves. He, had, he owned people. That's how wealthy he was. He also had a harem. That looks interesting. Uh, but he had lots of possessions. He had all the sex he could possibly want. Think about it, guys. Concubines and wives everywhere. Just pick the one. Blonde, brunette. Well, I guess in Israel you'd have to get a little dye there to get a blonde. But, you know, you can have any kind of person, any size you want. You know, you could just order them up, you know, put them in your computer, you know, what size and shape you wanted, the measurements, the color of hair, what kind of personality, just order them up for the day. You got hundreds of them. You got a harem. He had it all, possessions. Don't tell me that's meaningless too. Yep. Reminds me of the Rabbi Hafez Chaim 
in Europe. And Hafez Kaim lived in a, just a little place, a one-room thing. He had a cot and a place to write and a sink. And that was about it. And one time some, some Western, some American tourists came through and they saw the rabbi and they said, Rabbi, said, uh, Where, where's all your stuff? And he looked at them and said, where's yours? And they said, well, we're just passing through. He said, so am I. Uh, and people are, people, honestly, they're, yeah, I mean, they got stuff. You wouldn't believe how much stuff they have. And you'd think they're going to be here forever. You know, you're passing through. Why do you got all this stuff? Uh, so Solomon, Solomon, smart. He says, all this stuff I've got, meaningless. Okay, let's go from that to parties. Uh, verse 8b. He says, the delights, a harem, singers, and a harem. Ooh, this is fun. And the delights of the heart of man. And he's basically saying, that is not going to get it either. And you know what? I am kind of amazed that grown men just go from one party to the next. I, I'm really, first of all, I'm kind of impressed that you can still do it. <laughs> but... I, I really am just curious as to where, why is that so much fun? You know, going from one party to the next. I don't get it. But if you'll think, I don't think you'll get it either. Uh, what, what is, if that's the essence of your joy, just thinking about Friday night or Saturday night or something, uh, it's meaningless. And then verse 9, how about power? Yeah, that'd be good. We all look for power. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. So I want to be great. I want to be prestigious. I want to be powerful. Uh, I remember Woody Allen, who's a great existentialist. Uh, Woody Allen, in one of his movies, I don't remember which one it was, it was two, two Jewish women. I think they were in the Poconos. And they were sitting there at this little resort in the Poconos, and they were eating their dinner. And one of them says to the other, this food is so bland. And the other one says, yeah, and there's not enough of it either. <laughs> and that kind of is the picture of life, you know? It's so bland, and there's not enough of it. Uh, and here you have with power. So you're going to have all this power. And I tell you, I noticed something about you guys with power. You're going to have a funeral just like me. You know? But what about all that power you had? What is the meaning of all that power? Uh, you know, when you come come to the issue of death, it kind of it, it just ruins everything. Uh, let's look at chapter two, verse twelve. And here in these final verses, we learn that we are fooled. This is really sad. <laughs> You'd think that the one thing we can hang on to. In fact, he says in the end of verse, in the end of verse nine, in all this, my wisdom stayed with me. You know, so there you go. Okay. But now, in verse 12, we find we are fooled even by our wisdom. Like the fool, the wise men too must die. So look what he's saying. He's saying, look, I know that wisdom is important. I, he says, I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom. Okay, so I'm going to turn away from the parties and the, the drinking and all the possessions and, the, and all the sex. And, and as hard as that is, I want to turn from that and from the power and and all my big projects that are going to bring meaning to my life, I want to turn to all that and just say, you know what? It's just a matter of having wisdom. So I turn my thoughts to consider wisdom. 
And also thought I considered madness and folly. <laughs> you know, maybe it would be better to be mad. You know, uh, in verse 12. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom, look at verse 13, it is better than folly. Okay? I agree. It's better to be wise than a fool. Just as light is better than darkness. Okay? No problem. So I, I lift that verse out of the Proverbs, verse 13. I agree with the Proverbs. Proverbial wisdom. Remember, it applies to 95% of the cases. And I agree. Wisdom is better than stupidity. Verse 14. The wise man, he, he's like a guy with eyes in his head. While the fool just stumbles around. You know, he just walks in the darkness. But here's the problem. I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. <laughs> so he's saying, oh, just misery after misery. You know, I thought, I thought wisdom was worthwhile until I considered that they both lead to death. So then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What do, then do I gain by being wise? He said, now look, I agree wisdom is better than foolishness. But here's where I'm having trouble with the Proverbs. If wisdom brings life, that's great. But it looks to me like the guy who really lived the wise life, he ends up cold six feet under just like the other guy. So what is the big deal here about wisdom? I said in my heart, this too is meaningless. For the wise man, like the fool, will not be long remembered. In days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. Well, here you have it. That the problem is lack of control in life and especially lack of being able to control the issue of death itself. And that is the reason, gentlemen, that if we really want to live an effective life, a meaningful life, a full life, a useful life, can I say it, a happy life, in the midst of a life under the sun that doesn't make any sense and that is meaningless under the sun, you're going to have to get your mind above the sun. There's the only way you can do it. And that's the reason that in Paul's instructions for how to live the Christian life in Colossians chapter 3, he starts in Colossians 3 with heavenly mindedness. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's the first instruction by the Apostle Paul in living the Christian life and living a life of meaning when life itself does not hold meaning. And the best philosophers in the world only end up shooting themselves because of nihilism. There's nothing there. It's a chasing after the wind. That's the reason that if you want to live a life of meaning here, your head has to be in the heavenlies, your feet firmly planted on the ground, and your hands to the plow. That's the way Samuel Rutherford put it. Get your head in the heavenlies, your feet firmly planted on the ground, and your hands on the plow. So we become very productive and very useful, not only for ourselves and family, but for our neighbors and for our city and our world when we're heavenly-minded. 
Some say that so-and-so is so heavenly minded they're no earthly good. I say just the opposite. I've never met a man like that. Never met a man like that. I've met men who are so earthly minded they're no earthly good. But I've never met a man that was truly heavenly minded and was no earthly good. In fact, I've never met a man who was truly heavenly minded who wasn't of great earthly good. That's the secret to get yourself beyond death. And it's a fight. It really is a fight. Because none of us, by nature, wants to die. None of us wants to be reconciled to it, really. None of us wants to live a life in view of not living forever. It's something we have to cultivate. The Puritans used to work on this constantly. If you'll look at their devotions for how to practice the holy life, oftentimes they will say things like this. It's a little macabre, but, but I think helpful. When they get into bed and pull the bed sheets around them, they will say, to themselves, just think of this as your burial clothes that are being put around your body. They would, they would do what they call practicing death. And I would suggest you practice it. That you get used to thinking about your own funeral and your own grave and you think about ending it here. And then you're pressing your mind into the heavenlies. It's not just getting rid of yourself here, but it's thinking of moving forward in heaven, in paradise, and then to the new heavens and the new earth. Then you start living your life here in light of where you're going and the joy that is set before you. You endure the cross and scorn the shame, as it said of Jesus Christ. Jesus Himself was heavenly minded. Did He live a life of earthly good? I think so, more than anybody in the history of the world. But it was for the joy set before Him. He was heavenly minded. He contemplated fellowship with His Father constantly. And that's what enabled him to serve his brothers and sisters as he did. That's the key. And that's the reason that it's so important that we look for the assurance of our eternal life. Sometimes when I talk to guys, I ask them, you know, you think you're going to heaven? I don't know. I sure hope so. Well, why don't you know? Well, I'm just not sure if I'm, not good, if I'm good enough. Well, I've got an answer for you. You're not, so forget it. Uh, forget that. Forget that approach. You know, you're not good enough. You're never going to be good enough until you get into heaven and God transforms you. So now, with that, with that possibility gone, now what are you going to do? Well, what you're going to do is you're going to depend upon somebody else. His name is Jesus Christ. And the Apostle John, he said, look, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. This is 1 John uh, 5, 13 and 14. So that you may know that you have eternal life. This is verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. The entire epistle of 1 John is written so that you might know. And why does John want you to know? Well, certainly he wants you to know because he loves you and he wants your heart to be at rest. But he also wants you to know so that you can live a productive Christian life. You can't live a productive life if you don't know because you're always worrying. You're always trying to earn something, another project. Another something that I hope, hope that God notices. Forget all that. It's never good enough. You simply put your trust in Christ who died on the cross to pay for all of your foolishness and all of your sins, all of my drunkenness and all of my lust and all my avarice, all the things I've done or thought about doing. It's all washed away at the cross. And I trust in Him to have accomplished a record of performance that qualifies me to get into heaven. 
I put all my eggs in that basket, not 99 out of 100. I put them all in that basket. It's my only hope. And it's a sure and a certain hope that his record, his life was a perfect life. And it gives me a qualification to get into heaven. And therefore, my mind now goes beyond the sun. And I'm living life from another world in this world. I'm an alien and a stranger, says the Apostle Peter. I'm walking through. As Hafez Kaim said, I'm passing through. And I contemplate that. I live like that. And now I'm not burdened with the knowledge that I have. My burden is taken away by the knowledge that I have. And there is true wisdom, as we'll see when we get to the end of this book. But in the first part of it, don't we have a lovely litany of all the ways that men like the ones in this room are trying to get soak some meaning, some pleasure out of this life? And it ain't going to work. Why? Because the God who sent His Son to provide a way for us to heaven has subjected this world to vanity, to meaninglessness, to futility. And He's bigger than you are and He's smarter than you are and you're not going to suck meaning out of a meaningless life because He subjected it to such. Why? To move your attention toward heaven itself and the ultimate place, a whole environment of meaning and of satisfaction and of pleasure. So He's moving you away from the things that draw you here and allure you so that you waste your time. Moving you away from all that and moving you toward ultimate glory that Jesus has purchased for us on Calvary. That's the Gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the deep, deep wisdom that takes us even through the existentialism and the nihilism of men. That the brightest men have provided for us in this world. You take us beyond that. So that no longer do we look at death and destruction as our only out. But we look at the gift of life through Jesus Christ, the very summary of wisdom in this world and in the world to come. And through Christ, we are liberated from the futility to which You have subjected this world. And for this great gift, we thank You. And pray that by this gift, we may continually be delivered from the bondage of unceasing laughter at the jokes that come from this world or the relief that comes from wine or the relief that comes from being busy in projects or the relief we search for in our possessions or our parties or our power and greatness. God, deliver us from seeking meaning in false gods. But may we find it solely in Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. And we make our prayer in His name. Amen. God bless you all.